BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Hey, listeners, here at Inquiring Minds, we work really hard to bring you a show every week. And in order to do that, to keep our show going, we need the help of advertisers. But we want to make sure that those advertisers are ones that you would actually want to hear about. So we need to learn more about you to make that possible. So we're asking you this week to go to podsurvey.com slash minds and take a quick anonymous survey that'll help us get to know you better so that we can make sure we're bringing on advertisers who are relevant to you and your interests. And we can make sure that we're only saying yes to advertisers that you'll care about. Once you've completed the quick survey, you can even choose to enter for a chance to win a $100 Amazon gift card. Terms and conditions apply. Again, that's podsurvey.com slash minds, M-I-N-D-S. It would really help us a lot if you would go and fill it out. Thanks for your help. It's Monday, June 24th, 2019, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andre Viscontis. And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at inquiring.show, on Twitter at inquiringshow, and on Facebook. You can also get an ad-free version of the show by supporting us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds. And you can subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app. Hey, do you remember a couple years ago when I went on this retreat for 15 Hollywood directors and 15 scientists? And yeah. um, you remember that? And I, I Yeah, got, that was I, th- through the Science and Entertainment Exchange, right? Exactly. And I got one of my most coveted awards ever, um, which it called me the worst. It's like sitting in my office now. <laughs> it's from the National Academy of Science. It's probably the only award I'll ever get from them. Um, and it was because, you know, my partner and I, we won this like competition for the worst characters that we could imagine. Um, anyway, that was a total aside. It was a super fun weekend. And one of the things uh, that, that I was most memorable about it was actually the trip from the airport to the location where we were going to be holed up. And that was because I shared a cab with this guy who was a bioethicist from Johns Hopkins. And it turns out that he has a daughter and I have a son and they have the exact same birthday, like including the year. <laughs> we kind of oh, like wow. ran- randomly found that out. But in the course of that uh, conversation or, you know, uh, that that car ride, I learned a little bit more about what had happened to him and I he had ha- had a motorcycle accident and he was telling me about how you know he was he he was sort of working on this project to to think about the opioid crisis in America because as a result of his accident he had actually uh, become dependent on opioids and had to go through withdrawal and he was and as an ethicist it was a really interesting um thing for him to sort of f- see how the medical community is just not equipped to deal uh, with, with the proliferation of opioids. Oh, that's got to be fascinating because he's both a patient and somebody that's essentially coming up with a policy on what we should be doing when it comes to prescribing 
Oh, that's got to be such a personal struggle. So anyway, he we all had to give these like 15 minute talks. And his was by far the most moving talk out of everyone there. And we were all just gobsmacked listening to his story. And I am so excited this week because he is our guest. And finally, the book that documents his story, as well as a really deep historical dive into the history of opioid use in America, the science behind pain uh, and pain treatment, and sort of the medical practice surrounding pain and how it's changed over the last few decades. His book is finally out today. Travis is the Assistant Director for Education Initiatives and the Director of the Master of Bioethics degree program. And he's a research scholar at the Berman Institute of Bioethics. And he's a faculty affiliate for the Center uh, for Public Health Advocacy within Johns Hopkins. So he has a lot of different uh, positions. And essentially, he's extremely well placed to talk about the ethics of what happened to him, not only because of his own personal experience and all the information that you gain when you are a patient uh, about the disease from or you know, about the thing that you are suffering from, um, but also because he has this deep, deep training uh, in bioethics. Travis Reeder, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thanks for having me, Andre. This is, uh, I've, I've really been looking forward to this. Yeah, me too. Uh, in case our, our listeners obviously don't know, but you and I met at a really fun uh, weekend for film directors and scientists. And that's when I first heard your story. And I have to say, I've been waiting for your book to come out so that I can have you on the show and have all our listeners hear the story too, because it's so compelling. So let's jump right in to you telling us the story of the accident that changed your life. What happened? Sure. So I'll give you a, a shortish version so I don't ramble and then you can you can point me in whatever direction you want. Um, so in, in 2015, uh, it was Memorial Day weekend. I was I had a lot to celebrate uh, and I had purchased a new motorcycle in celebration. So um, my partner Sadia and I had kind of new stable jobs, finished our postdocs. I had a new faculty position at Johns Hopkins. Everything was going great. And so I bought a shiny new motorcycle. I got rid of my old one and I took it out for my first real ride on the Saturday of Memorial Day weekend and got about three blocks from my house um, before a, a car blew, essentially blew a stop sign, blew a, a stop coming out of a housing addition and T-boned me. And it crushed, the accident crushed my left foot between the, the van that he was driving and my motorcycle. And then actually the motorcycle then also flipped and, and landed on top of that same foot. And so some combination of all of those impacts resulted in um, several of the bones in my foot shattering and blowing a hole out through the skin, which is very gruesome. And so at the end of all of that, I was in what's called a limb salvage situation, which is to say that uh, I was uh, under threat of having my foot amputated from, from uh, this mangled extremity injury. I have to say that when I met you, you were still using a cane a little bit, and I had no idea how bad the injury was, uh, given, you know, after, when I when I read the first couple chapters of your book, it's like my mind was completely blown, because this is not just a broken foot. <laughs> I, I, mean, right. I mean, the kinds of surgeries that you describe are amazing. Like, tell us about free flap surgery, which is a, a phrase I wish I had never heard. <laughs> I know. And now your listeners are going to wish they had never heard, but there we go. Um, yeah. So I'm in the same boat. I wish I'd never heard of it as well. Uh, so when you're in this sort of situation, 
there's just, you have a long future of surgery. And so one of the first things that I kind of grew to understand was that there's a difference between kind of run of the mill injuries that most people sustain and then medical traumas, which is what I had sustained. And the, the real difference here is that the trauma is something that you're going to be dealing with uh, oftentimes over the course of many surgeries over a very long time. The recovery will be measured in months, years, and may never be complete. And so um, I had four well, I had three immediate limb salvage surgeries. And so those were performed by an orthopedic trauma surgeon who was basically taking all these shards of bone and stitching them back together as best he could, basically bring them into contact with one another. And the way he described it to me in the hospital was trying to rebuild the pole so that you could build a tent around it. Um, and so that took up the first say week of my hospitalization were, were these immediate trauma surgeries. But then I had this problem that I had a massive hole in my foot and it had never even occurred to me that when you have these sorts of injuries, that that's a problem. Like that's a puzzle. How do you close, you know, a hole once it becomes bigger than just a cut or something? And so one solution that people have probably heard of is a skin graft. And so my fourth surgery was actually an attempted skin graft where they were going to take skin from my forearm and just kind of lay it over top. Um, but that, that was never going to work. I don't even know why we tried it because the, the wound had gotten very big by that point. So that surgery was eventually aborted. And what a free flap is the solution to this very difficult problem, which is once you've lost, lost a sufficient amount of tissue, you need to transplant some of that tissue from another part of your body to kind of pack the hole. And so my left thigh was cut open from about my hip to my knee and muscle and fat were taken to fill the hole. Skin was taken to cover it. But then you also have so much tissue that you need to vascularize it. And so an artery was clipped out to bring blood supply to the tissue. And then also because it took up a huge portion of the bottom of my foot, um, they don't want you to not have sensation. You know, you could step on a nail or step on hot, you know, something hot. And you need to be able to sense pain because that's a defense uh, for your body. So they actually clipped out a nerve from my thigh as well. And so the nerve and the artery are kind of microsurgically transplanted into the foot to try to br bring it back to something like its, its original state. So that's a free flap surgery. You cut it free from one part of your body and, and <laughs> reconstruct another part of your body. And it was massive. It was three surgical teams and took about nine hours. I mean, it's amazing that we can do that. And, you know, for those of you who finished watching Game of Thrones, uh, you're welcome. <laughs> Here's some more violence <laughs> and gore. Uh, but, you know, it, it also sounds incredibly painful, obviously. And uh, in my head, I always had this, uh, you know, I've, I've given birth to two children. Uh, I had this idea that there at some point is a limit to how much pain you can sense. And I felt like I probably hit that limit, um, although... Maybe, maybe not. I mean, I never really passed out from pain. Um, and, you know, I hear people do do that. But from your description of the pain, it almost sounds like that goalpost continued to move for you. Um, so tell us a little bit about sort of the experience of the pain, and ultimately how that led to pain management. Yeah, I, I mean, this is such a wild topic, right? And so at the beginning of the book, I have this chapter on pain. And it's because that really is the kind of philosophically most puzzling aspect of, of this whole thing that I too thought that like there surely um, must be a limit on pain. But then also I'm a philosopher by training, right? And so I, I was kind of puzzled by this question of how in the world you would ever know that you hit the limit of, of pain, because couldn't you always imagine it being dialed up just a little bit, right? Um, and so, yeah, there was 
there were uh, several crazy experiences. So one of them happened after the very first surgery. So the first night in the hospital after the accident, um, because what often happens in this sort of case is you get kind of a generic pain medication prescription because the surgeon leaves and, you know, it's the middle of the night. And so I had this fairly generic, you know, a little bit of oxycodone at eight o'clock and then I can't take any more until midnight. So then at 10 o'clock in between, I get an IV um, dilated, which is hydromorphone, uh, um, and then 12, go back to the oxy and so on. So you have to get between two hours, you have to get through two hours between each one. And what was really interesting is by that time I'd already been in pain for, you know, 24 hours or something close to that by the middle of the night. Um, and I really, you keep getting asked this question, what's your pain on a scale of zero to 10? Get this asked by every nurse and doctor who comes in. And I, I would say something really terrible, you know, seven or eight. And, and I would think, oh my God, how can people survive pain like this? You know, I need the next dose of hydromorphone, but it did keep dialing up. And I started to get kind of conceptually worried because philosophers are weird. I was like, what happens if I run out of numbers? Like, you know, after I say nine, then I have to say nine and a half because I got to reserve 10 for something else. But then when I say nine and a half and it gets worse, well, I still won't know if it's 10. And eventually at one point that night, I did finally just kind of come without reflection to this realization that I'd hit a 10 on the pain scale. And that's what I told my nurse. And, and he eventually gave me pain meds early. And the, re the reason I think I just instinctively and fairly unreflectively said, like, this is the moment I'm at a 10 is because I kept thinking I'm going to die if something doesn't change. And if I don't die, I'm just going to have to smash my head against the wall. Like, I am going to have to escape consciousness, right? And it's a crazy, crazy thing. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I did not get to that point in either of my childbirth experiences. But I, I do remember my second one where, and I apologize for the incredibly uncouth hijacking of your pain story. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we all have that. It's, it's cool. It's war stories. Yeah. But I, I just remember, like, you know, that the, them saying, like, when you know, do you, when do you want the anesthesiologist to come in? And I was like, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And then I'm like, you know what? If he doesn't come in now, I'm not going to be able to actually give birth because I'm like, you know, I'm just not going to want to be conscious for it anymore. And of course, that's when he was in a C-section that took another two hours. <laughs> and uh, uh, you know, I've yes. never seen the minutes go by more slowly. And like, you're just, you just want to. It's like you're almost you want to climb out of your mind, you know, where you're, you're just like, yeah, it's like time totally slows. And, and so in your description, I can totally imagine, you know, then knowing that there is this pain relief asking for it. And so, you know, you kind of describe the kind of uh, the, the way in which pain was, you know, where you had to talk about the subjective experience of pain. And I, I want to jump ahead a little bit and get to the point where, you know, you started to you know, ex experience something a little bit weird, where people started not to believe your reportings of how much pain you were in. You sort of had one physician that started to look to you a little skeptically. Tell us about that. Yeah, this this was so clearly seared into my mind um, because it was I was in the ICU. It was after this big free flap surgery. So that was surgery number five. It was almost exactly a month after the accident. I was in the third hospital of this whole ordeal. I had pins sticking out of my foot in every direction. And that free flap surgery just left me wrecked because I not only had this, you know, you hugely expanded, excavated wound on my foot, but I now had this other second surgical side of my thigh where they'd harvested all this tissue. And I was in excruciating pain that was escalating. And I'd had a month to learn about pain and how I managed 
And I saw that 10 coming back, right? Because that first night in the hospital haunted me the whole time. And so I saw it coming back and I was panicking. And in hospitals, things move really slowly. And I was in a big university teaching hospital. And so you you talk to residents and interns and nurses, and it takes a very long time to get things kind of go up through the channels. And so I kept telling them more and more insistently, I have to get more pain meds, like your doses aren't doing enough. I'm I'm just in real trouble here. So finally, on rounds, the the uh, ICU attending, so the doc that's in charge of the ICU residents, the, uh, she comes around. She's got her flock of trainees around her, and she doesn't talk to me for a good long while. They stay out in the hall, and even though I know they're talking about me, because I can hear them saying, "Mr. Reader." And so eventually she comes into the room and I'm kind of panicky at this point. It's been hours and hours as the pain escalated. And so I tell her, I say, look, I've been asking for pain medication. I'm desperate here. I'm under medicated. You know, I, I'm not going to be able to catch up. I'd like learned all the words and all the phrases over the past month. And she just almost interrupted me. She kind of been looking at her, her clipboard, you know, impatiently. And I'm kind of ranting and she just looks up and says, yes, Mr. Reader, your repeated requests for more pain medication have been noted. I will discuss its appropriateness with my team. And they like swooped out. I mean, amazing, right? All of a sudden, you are now looked upon as as a, a child who's misbehaving. Yes, yeah, exactly. And you know, I was, I was so surprised and caught off guard and, you know, traumatized and at least somewhat high, like, <laughs> like, my mental health was like, all over the place. And I, and I honestly couldn't figure out what had just happened. Like I was so confused, but I, even despite my confusion, I was kind of ashamed, like the way she'd spoken to me, like, oh my God, I've, I've done something wrong. What, what have I done wrong? And that was the first time. And it's the only one that I really talk about in the book, but Sadia reminded me much later when she was reading a draft of the book that she got this experience a lot at the pharmacy. Cause she'd be the one, you know, I was laid up at home for months and months. And so she'd be the one going to pharmacies to pick up my ever escalating doses of oxycodone and gabapentin, which is a non-opioid painkiller I was taking as, as well. And, uh, and she would get really like talked down to and judged by the pharmacists. And eventually my doses got high enough that, um, for one of the last refills, she told me that she had to go to a bunch of different pharmacies because they refused to fill it. And they would usually say something like, Oh, we don't keep that dose on the shelves, you know, for fear of being robbed or diversion or something. And, you know, you're an ethicist, which is why your book is so important and so interesting. Uh, and, and you know now from firsthand experience that there is this subjective nature to pain. I mean, there's no biomarker of pain uh, much to, you know, the, the, the pharmaceutical companies and the doctor's dismay. I mean, it'd be great if you could take a blood test and see, oh, okay, you know, cortisol levels are at X, therefore the person must feel Y. <laughs> but that doesn't exist. No. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, we've tried to get around that, right, with the with this pain scale. This is the tool that the healthcare system uses uh, to try to measure pain. But of course, it's an inherently flawed tool, not to say that I didn't become better at using it, but pain is subjective. And so that means my report of pain is also subjective. And so, yeah, I can convey seriousness, but that's it. Yeah. And, and you, as you uh, rightly note, are a highly educated white guy. And so, I, you know, I, I've actually been familiar with the literature on bias, uh, uh, both gender bias and racial bias in terms of uh, uh, pain management. And so tell us a little bit about what you found out uh, that is really disconcerting 
Yeah, it's uh, it's truly, truly disconcerting. And so I kind of found this out as I was investigating. You know, one of the first questions that haunted me was, um, you know, is my situation idiosyncratic? Like, in what ways do I need to figure out, like, what's generalizable and what problems other people have probably had? And one of the things that I learned in the first couple of years of researching is that there are all of these disparities and who gets their pain taken seriously. And those have correlated over about the past two decades with uh, how opioids are prescribed to treat pain. So how aggressively is, is how the doctors tend to think of this, their pain is treated. And so systematically, yeah, African-Americans and uh, members of the Hispanic community are have their pain um, reports taken less seriously and so are undertreated. And um, women have their reports of pain taken less seriously and so are less aggressively treated. And what's really crazy about all of this is that as you start to learn it, it becomes less surprising how the early stages of the opioid epidemic unfolded because the most aggressive prescribing was for white men whose pain reports were taken most seriously. And so we had this early stage of the opioid epidemic where the white population, first the rural and then kind of the suburban white population, was hit hardest. And so you have this uh, crazy bias in which the healthcare system is systematically taking people's pain less seriously. That's really bad. Um, but then even when we become bad at handling opioids and start to overprescribe them, this has an associated bad for people whose pain is taken most seriously, right? So our, our inability to handle pain is hurting us in just all sorts of ways. And it's really, it's really incredible. So, I mean, it's, it's not just that, like, you know, you have this kind of implicit bias where doctors, you know, are unaware of the fact that they are making these decisions. Like you talk about a study in which people who were in um, the medical profession, I, I don't remember if they were students or already working, were asked whether the, th the skin of people who are African-American was thicker than of Caucasians. Yeah, this study is absolutely mind blowing. Um, so this was done out of Virginia. And there were members of the, the kind of normal population, medical students, and then residents. So residents being people who have an MD, they've completed medical school, practicing physicians. And they were given a bunch of claims and asked whether they're true or false. And so the most staggering one was that some really distressing percentage that I won't be able to recall off the top of my head of not only the population and med students, but residents of so practicing physicians uh, said that the claim that African-American skin is thicker than white was true. And uh, those people who said that were less likely to take reports in a kind of follow-up. So there was a vignette portion of the study where they're given a case of a patient coming in and, and asked how they would deal with it. So they took the reports of pain of African-Americans less seriously and prescribed less pain medication for African-Americans than whites. So yeah, we could trace this having a direct effect, right? The more false beliefs you have about the difference between the races, the more differently you'll treat them in assessing their pain and aggressively treating it. And then, okay, so you also have a, a really nice kind of overview of the history of opioid use uh, over the last hundred years, which, which was really interesting for me to hear about how, you know, in the 70s and 80s, it was, it was thought to be like a wonder drug. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, so basically, we had been in this era of virtual prohibition. We were really freaked out about opioids because we'd had an earlier epidemic at the turn of the um, 19th century and uh, 19th to 20th century. And so 
there was a lot of fear of opioids. There was fear of heroin in particular. So it had been outlawed uh, despite being an analgesic, a pharmaceutical analgesic. And um, what slowly happened starting in the 70s was there was a kind of slow birth of a palliative care field and a movement of people who were going into especially cancer wards and seeing that we were so afraid of opioids that we would even watch patients die of end-stage cancer, you know, so actively dying patients in excruciating pain and not give them opioids. And this was both because the physician would say, I don't want my patients to get addicted, but even the patients would often say, I don't want to be, uh, you know, I don't want to be an addict. I don't want my family to think I'm an addict. These are their words. And so um, some of these early pioneers, so Kathleen Foley and eventually her her uh, mentee, Russ Port- Russell Portnoy, they were like, this is insane. We have swung too far here. This prohibition doesn't make any sense. There are certain cases, surely, where we should be able to use these medications. And so that that very, very sensible, very empathetic move was the start. It was kind of the camel's nose under the tent where we started to let opioids back into the medical conversation. And what happened after that gets gets a lot more suspect because then there start to be a lot more players on the field of a burgeoning pain advocacy movement. And so you have a combination of organizations like the American Pain Society that took funding from pharmaceutical companies. Uh, so the president of the American Pain Society was actually the guy who coined the phrase pain as the fifth vital sign, this idea that you have to constantly evaluate pain and treat it. Um, and you have that coming alongside new and more powerful pharmaceuticals like Purdue Pharma's Oxycontin that has gotten so much play in the media. And then a genuine pain advocacy movement, too, of people saying, look, if it's safe to use on people who have really severe pain in the form of cancer, why wouldn't it be safe to use on other really severe pains? Because cancer is not that special. And the answer could only be that if they're going to live long enough, right, that this would be dangerous. And so if anyone believed that these opioids weren't that dangerous to use in the long term, that would be the ammo needed. And so that data started to be put forward. So there are very infamous studies now that said that claim to show things like, well, some studies and some not studies that get cited as studies. So some papers that claim that, you know, addiction rate is incredibly low in patients using opioids for pain. And all of that information gets twisted around by pharma, by people who are doing pharma's bidding. And there's this swell up into about the 90s of opioids aren't that dangerous. And we are torturing our patients by letting them just agonize in pain. So we should just give opioids out like crazy. And that came to a head in the mid 90s and got the ball rolling. And in, in and we've seen, you know, the outcome since then, basically. Yeah. And I just, you know, I want to I want to get back and talk about addiction and tolerance and dependence and withdrawal, um, which is a big feature of your book. But I want to just jump ahead for, for a second to a sentence that you lay out um, right before you go into your recovery, uh, which is this idea that it, we don't have a prescription opioid problem. We have a pain management problem. So, you know, I, I just want our listeners to understand you are not arguing that you should never use opioids, right? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, that's part of why I go into such excruciating detail about the pain that I've been through is because, you know, I, I try to walk this fine line. You know, I, I speak in public and, um, and I do writing other than this book. So, you know, I've, I've been in the public eye already on this topic and there's so much passion on, you can think of both sides. There's like this still very live pain advocacy movement. And then there's this uh, movement of people who blame 
prescription opioids for the current opioid epidemic. And there's a lot of passion on both sides. And I'm trying to walk this line in the middle to show what negative truth is in both sides. And so it gives me a little bit of standing in this conversation to say like, no, 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 I've been in pain. I'm still in pain. I had my foot blown apart. I know what opioids can do, but I know it on both sides. I know what they can do when you would kill yourself to get out of the pain. But I also know what they can do when they get their hooks into your brain and you think you'll never get free of them. And that's the reason I spend so much time talking about the pain. Let's get into the withdrawal process and, and, and how you went through that. And, and But before we go there, I also want to just say that, you know, you're, you're really uh, very good in the book to not blame any specific physician, even though you point out shortcomings in terms of your pain management, and to point out also that when you've had the opportunity to work with physicians in order to help change the situation, they've been very receptive. I really think they have. Yeah. And of course, there might be a bunch that hate me that don't talk to me. Right. But the, but yeah, the folks that I have real conversations with, everybody's pretty desperate at this point. You know, if you are a physician or if you know a physician who's not worried at all about pain management and specifically the way we use opioids, then I think you're just not being careful. Right. So, you know, individuals, so I, I have lots of colleagues who are incredibly good at doing pain management and using opioids responsibly. So they're, they're not worried about themselves, but they're all worried about the institution of medicine because we, you know, in the grand sense, uh, we suck at it. We are really bad at dealing with medicine and specifically with using opioids well to extract the goods uh, while avoiding the bads. All right. So let's talk about where they failed you. Uh, so you were starting to recover from your surgeries. You started to feel like you could start to reduce your pain medication. And then what happened? Yeah. You know, it was strange because I did. I started to feel like I could reduce my pain medication all on my own. You know, so I'm a couple of months out from the accident. I've been home from the last surgery for about a month. And, um, and life gets real slow at this point. You know, you were talking about clock watching, uh, when you were, um, going through childbirth. So clock watching is this really well-documented feature, right? So people who are both in pain and who are using drugs, right. To mitigate those pains. So drugs, either prescription or illicit, um, right. You, th you're thinking constantly about like, when can I get relief? Like that's one of the preoccupying features. And I actually started to get to the point completely on my own where I stopped watching the clock quite as aggressively and I'd started to spread out my um, immediate release oxycodone. And so I'd made it to five or six hours between doses a few times. So I was very proud of myself, which is the funny part. And I went to see the trauma surgeon just for a regular update. And he's asking me all the standard questions. What's your pain like? What, how many meds are you taking? And we kind of do the math and we give him the answer. And he just gets real serious and says you know, that's, that's too much. You are way too far out from surgery. You need to get off the medications. And he was so serious about it that we were just immediately scared. Like, again, felt like we'd done something very wrong. Um, but note, he said like, you need to get off the meds, but also basically not my job, right? Who's been handling your prescription? Okay. The plastic surgeon has, so go see the plastic surgeon. And so we did, we installed a plastic surgeon who'd organized the team to do the free flap surgery. 
And uh, he was not nearly as concerned. He's like, oh, yeah, if you think you can handle it, you know, time to get off the meds. So why don't you just cut your daily dose into four and drop one dose per week and you'll be free and clear of the meds in a month. And we were a little incredulous, uh, especially Sadia, who's, who's a scientist. She didn't know a lot about this field, but she's like, that seems kind of fast. The other doc was really scared and really worried for us. He's like, no, 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 it should be fine. Four weeks should be fine. And so that's what we did. And how did it go? Uh, it went badly. Um, so yeah, spoiler alert, that was a really, really bad piece of advice. The tapering schedule that he gave us was incredibly aggressive. And so... Basically, you know, oxycodone has a very short half-life, and so you go into withdrawal pretty quickly. And so the very first day that I cut my dose, I started feeling sick. And the sickness you feel at the beginning is flu-like. You get nauseated and goosebumps, uh, but cold at the same time, and your nose runs and your eyes tear. and it's, it's really, really unpleasant. But at the very beginning, it basically just feels like getting a flu. And so you kind of go into that and it's pretty freaky. So like, oh, that's, that's how this is going to go. But the symptoms ramp up over a few days. And so as this first week goes on, you know, people ask, what are the symptoms of withdrawal like? And I, I tend to say, well, take the worst flu you've ever imagined, multiply it by a thousand And that's the starting symptoms, right? That gives you a sense of just the kind of systemic failure of your body. And so we immediately were like, this is going terribly. But we actually didn't call anyone that first week because, you know, we had suspected that it was going to be hard. And at the end of that first week, I did actually start to get a little bit better. So on day like six or something, I woke up and thought, oh, this isn't quite as bad. And so we kind of rallied. Sadi gave me a pep talk. You know, you can get through this. Uh, and we went and we dropped the second dose and the second dose drop was the one that really kind of made us realize this was not going to be anything like what we thought it was going to be because all those symptoms ramp up, but that's when I got the more kind of psychological symptoms. And so fast forward in my research, the opposite of a drug's effects or uh, withdrawal is basically the opposite of a drug's effects. Right. And so part of what you get with opioids is euphoria. So part of what you get in withdrawal is generalized dysphoria. And a lot of folks experience depression, which I did. And I started crying. And so you get all of these really terrible physical symptoms. But the psychological symptoms are so bad that in that second week, I actually um, almost I don't even remember the physical effects anymore, because that's not what was most distressing to me. I want to pause here for a little bit and just note that at, there was at no point during this that you felt like you wanted to take the drugs again, which I thought was really remarkable and a really interesting insight that, you know, we tend to think of people who are, you know, addicted to painkillers as there's a part of them that wants to continue taking them. Um, but here, it, it sounded from your description that there was never a time when you were like, oh, I wish I could take a pill again. It was just, I wish I could get rid of this feeling. Yeah, exactly. And it's it's so hard to to even put into words and to fully wrap my own mind around because of course now I've kind of been muddled by four years of research or whatever but but no that is the way it occurred to me and there's some abstract sense in which I wanted to take the pills again because the pills made me feel better but I didn't desire them I was a little disgusted by them because of what they were doing to me and so yeah there was only a sense in which I was desperate to feel better but what I was really desperate for was to feel better without the pills. 
And most of the time, what I spent thinking about was not taking more drugs. Most of what I spent my time thinking about was, am I going to get back to normal so that I can be a father to my one and a half year old, right? Am I going to get back to normal so that I can be a husband again? Like that's what was completely preoccupying me. Yeah. So I didn't experience what felt like cravings. I didn't experience any kind of a sense of compulsion. I just wanted to be better. And, you know, when you asked your plastic surgeon, ultimately, finally, you got a hold of him what to do, you know, his answer was go back to a higher dose or, you know, don't taper so quickly. And that was not an option for you. Yeah. And, you know, maybe if he had said don't taper so quickly, maybe that actually would have felt like an option if he had said it and he and we felt like he had any reason for what he was saying, but he just clearly didn't know what he was doing. Right. And so, yeah, we finally called him during that second week when I started crying and he said, well, look, if it's that bad, you know, go back to your previous dose and stabilize for a bit. But the thing that we couldn't get our minds around was, you know, why would we do that if this is how it's going to be? And he, so so what is the move after that? And all he had to say was, look, you can go back to you feel better and then wait till you're stronger and try again. But he never gave us a sense that we would be able to do it easier, right? That it was ever going to be better than this. And so like, what's the, what's the reasoning supposed to be here? Am I really supposed to make myself feel better now knowing that I'm going to lose whatever, you know, advancement I've made in the last few days or whatever, and, and just have to start all over again. Like every mo moment was so excruciating. I was not going to be able to, to make myself do this again. And, you know, at the risk of like skipping ahead a little bit, uh, you know, I, I, I just want to say that that there there was a part of me that I, I did feel like I was watching Game of Thrones because I kept wanting to <gasps> shout at you, just go to the addiction people <laughs> or yeah. don't taper so fast. Um, and those didn't seem like options for you. Why not? I think what I would have needed is I would have needed somebody to say to me, you know, here's what the evidence actually shows that you can do this better. But we couldn't get anybody to talk to us who, I, who, who had this combination, who both knew what they were doing and was willing to spend their time on us, right? Because we did start calling more than just our doctor who didn't know what he was doing. We started calling everyone. And basically everyone who had been involved in my care, so, you know, a dozen clinicians had written prescriptions, um, you know, three different hospitals, a pain management service at one of them, you know, nobody would talk to us, including the pain management service. And when we would get people to talk to us, it would be who would say, like, I, I don't know what to do, you know, go to the guy who prescribed you the pills, which, of course, is where we started. And so, yeah, I mean, eventually, when I got real desperate and was calling around other pain management services, and, and all they were willing to do was to prescribe more pills, eventually, I did get, you know, probably a little loud and a little aggressive. And uh, the receptionist I was talking to says, look, sounds like you need addiction services. Why don't you try a methadone clinic? And and I did try those places, but they didn't want me either because they heard my story and said, well, look, we deal with people who are really struggling with addiction. You know, they've been on they've been using high doses of oxycodone or heroin or fentanyl for months or years. Like you just had surgery. You just need to get off this stuff. If you come here, you know, we're going to put you on methadone or buprenorphine to to keep you on the drugs, not to get you off. Right. So it was like, I'm nobody's problem here. There's there's this big gap in the system. But that's a really interesting insight that you and they did not 
feel that you qualified as addicted. And I think a lot of people don't understand the difference between going through withdrawal and how horrible that is and addiction. Yeah. So this was one of my main takeaways from the whole experience. And it's interesting because I had no background in addiction. I had not studied, studied this at all. But I think just because it had been my experience and the way I had internalized it, it's just as just my body's physiological reaction, right? I was just being tortured. That's all it was. And so it never once occurred to me that what I was fighting was addiction. Like that thought never even came into my head. It's not that I'm being defensive. It's that it literally never occurred to me. And so then when I'm talking to these pain docs or receptionists at the clinic or whatever, and they say, look, if this is the help you need, you need to go to an addiction clinic. I was caught off guard because that just didn't seem to be my problem. And so I spent the next year basically after this, you know, once I got some distance from it and I was like, okay, this is going to be a research program for me. I wanted to figure out like, why are people confused and what is the truth about what happens to your brain when you go on these meds? Right. And it turns out the answers to both of those questions are independently really hard. So what's the facts of the matter about what happens and how do we conceptualize that? in terms of tolerance, dependence, addiction, right? And then throw in these other catchwords, substance use disorder, or opioid use disorder. All of that stuff is super hard and confusing. And there's no agreement on it, right? I spend the next you know, months and years after I started learning about myself going around and asking experts, and they all had different views. And they all argue within themselves in the literature, you know, experts argue within themselves. So yeah, it's an incredibly difficult set of issues. But I, my, my prior going into it, having experienced it, was that there's something physiological that happens that you can at least sometimes pull apart from the behavioral, the behavioral symptoms of addiction. And that's where I started. Yeah, you came very close, I think, to potentially becoming addicted in that last night before you ultimately had that one final one, one great first night's sleep uh, after going through four weeks of withdrawal. And so I want you just to take us to that moment and walk us through what would have happened if you hadn't gotten to sleep that night. Yeah. So this is at the end of four weeks. It's right around day like 28, 29. I mean, we were really tied to the calendar here. And I had gotten so, so desperately sick and so depressed that, you know, I hadn't slept in about three days, right? You get these jitters that keep you awake. Uh, so again, the opposite of sedation from opioids, right? And I hadn't eaten anything in who knows how long. And I was trying to vomit all the time, but hadn't eaten anything. And I got to the point where I was so scared and Sadia was so scared for me that we decided I was going to go back on the meds. And neither one of us were happy about it. It's not like fine, you know, but it was like it was the lesser of two evils, right? Because we were really scared. And it was very, it was very just kind of wild that that was the night I finally like, okay, I'm actually going to bed tonight. I hadn't done that in a while. And I thought to myself, look, I'm going to try to sleep before I take one of these pills. I just can't give in without one last fight. And, and I fell asleep. It was the first time I'd really slept at all, uh, in weeks. And the first time I'd slept, you know, for more than a few minutes, uh, in, in a few days. And yeah, when I woke up the next day, I certainly didn't feel good, but I, the withdrawal symptoms had abated so much that that was the time that I knew I was going to make it and I didn't have to go back on the meds because I got this night's sleep. Oh, wait a minute. Now I lost the thread. What was yeah, your no, question? So, so, but my question was, which, which I think even when we first had this conversation many years ago before you started writing your book, was the, the insight that what if you had taken that pill, how would that have psychologically affected you? 
Yes, exactly. And so this was, you know, funny. Our backstory is that, you know, I met you at such a fortuitous time because I was asking experts these questions. I was trying to figure this out. And so I just, yeah, picked your brain, used the opportunity. But my thought was I had finally given in, right? That I was absolutely willing to take a pill that night if I had gone one more night unable to sleep and being tortured. And so if I had the kind of experiment, the thought experiment that I run in the book is, you know, how might that have affected me? And you could also change different things about my life. But the the main thing that it would have done, right, is I had successfully for four weeks, I had just suffered the symptoms and I hadn't reinforced the activity of taking the pills, right? And so what I started to think about later was, you know, when you take opioids, you not only cause euphoria, you cause pain, uh, man, you, you, you cause analgesia. So you can manage your pain. You get this comfort and this warm blanket sensation to varying extents, different people experience it differently. Right. But then the, this other thing happens, right, which is that you build tolerance and dependence. And as that happens, not taking the pills hurts. Right. So then taking the pills at that point, not only relieves whatever pain you were initially relieving, not only causes, you know, varying amounts and decreasing amounts of euphoria, but now it also relieves the suffering the pills are imposing via their dependence. It's like a really sick trick of nature, which is kind of the place that I've come to thinking about this. But yeah, so what I would have done if I had taken that pill that night is I would have kind of, again, ensconced this circuit that, you know, now I know how to relieve my suffering and I was willing to do it once and I was kind of did it with the blessing of the medical establishment because they were like, oh, go back on the pills and we're going to keep giving you prescriptions. And all of that build up, the defensiveness that I built up that I'm not going to do this, I'm just going to suffer my way out of it. Like once I gave in, what I told Desadia, the reason we waited so long is because I said to her, if I go back on the meds, I will never come off them. And it was because I just knew I would never be able to make myself do this again. This was my one chance because it was so, so bad. It's such a powerful reinforcer to with, withdraw punishment, you know? Yeah, um, it's... Yeah. yeah. And, 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 and you made such a, you made it so, so clear uh, in your story. And, and, you know, even, even in your description of like, okay, the first time I felt really bad pain, it was bad. The second time it was not only just as bad, but I also was panicking about the pain. I mean, I remember going through that, you know, yeah. one of my biggest fears about getting pregnant the second time was the fact that I was going to have to give birth. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, it was like, it, it kept me up at night because I was so afraid of it. And because I knew what was happening. <laughs> What was going to happen. It was going to be terrible. And, you know, so I think that that, you know, you can, you can see how all of a sudden, you know, the, this kind of dependence or tolerance uh, can turn into addiction, because it becomes a learned, uh, you know, piece of information that, hey, the one thing that is going to take away this really horrible thing is that pill. Exactly. Yeah. And it's, and it's really hard to philosophically, you know, I don't know if, if this bothers you as much as it bothers me. But you know, the way we tend to divide thinking about addiction and thinking about dependence, we, you know, folks in the literature is um, addiction is behavioral, behavioral, right? And so uh, there's the kind of three C's, you get compulsiveness, uh, cravings, and the inability to control your behavior. And so like, what addiction adds to physical dependence is that you know, for whatever reasons, because your reward system and your motivation system have been kind of hijacked, uh, you find yourself unable to refrain in ways that are really detrimental. You know, you watch people in the throes of addiction kind of burn their life down 
in choosing this drug or this behavior, you know, for some people's gambling or whatever. So what's really just kind of philosophically crazy about that is that whether something becomes an addiction is a behavioral failure, like it's built into it. And so one of the questions is, if you have an unlimited supply of heroin and you're never going to get caught, right? So if you're wealthy and powerful enough that you can always get heroin and you're never going to face the negative consequences that result in burning your life down, do you suffer from addiction, right? Because you don't have all of the behavioral sequelae that go along with it. And that's what really just messes with me about it. Because what I wonder about that last night is if I had finally given in and taken that pill, which I was totally ready to do, would that thing that felt like just the rational decision at the time just be evidence of the fact that I now have an addiction because I have to do it, right? I have to relieve myself. <laughs> it's, it's just a, such it, an interesting, it messes with my head. tiny sliver of a behavior that seems random, ultimately. You know, it's like you fell asleep. So, you know, we're, we're running short on time as, as I expected we would, because I could talk for another hour. So I'm going to put you in the very awkward and difficult position of uh, giving us some direction on what's next. What do you think, having had this experience and with your training as an ethicist, a bioethicist in, in particular, what do you think are the next steps? Are the next steps for the country for medicine? Is that for what you're pain asking? management for yeah. you know the opioid crisis? Uh, yeah, I mean, what what do you think is the sort of you know uh, where where do we go from here in terms of solving this problem so that people don't have to go through what you went through? Yeah. Okay. So bad news first. You know, the bad news is pain management is completely fundamentally broken. And I don't just mean that as, you know, the, the relatively few docs who are pain docs, they actually tend to be well-trained and fairly good at what they do. Um, and some of them are amazing at what they do, right? But pain management in the sense that millions and millions of Americans go to their physician every year because of pain. And they're seen by doctors who are not trained in how to treat pain, who don't know anything about opioids, and who really only know, here's a prescription that you can write to make that person leave their office, right? Pain medicine is fundamentally terribly broken in America. Now, let's set that aside for a second and say, the drug overdose crisis that we're facing in America, that bears some relationship, because it's been kicked off. It's been spurred by the rise in opioid overdose deaths and opioid addiction. And in the early stages, that followed a perfect trend with prescription opioid overdose death as that followed increases in prescribing. So we have this kind of connection of starting in the 90s, we start handing out opioid prescriptions hand over fist, 400% increase in prescribing between 1999 and 2010, and a 400% rise in opioid overdose deaths from prescriptions in that same time frame, right? But there's now been a disconnect. We have started squeezing the supply of prescription opioids as we freaked out about how bad we are at that first part, the pain medicine part. And so we started telling doctors, stop killing your patients, stop writing these prescriptions. And we have started squeezing that supply, but the result was not a solution to the the broad overdose crisis because, well, because it was never going to be, because that's not how addiction works, right? And so we, by that point, had had a population of millions of people suffering from addiction. And when you cut off their legitimate supply, and addiction is defined by compulsive behavior, even in the face of negative consequences, right? Some portion of that population will go where they can get 
the drug that will feed their brain. And so at the exact time that we reduce supply of prescription opioids, you see a massive uptick in heroin overdose deaths. And as soon as more people start using heroin, we see fentanyl making heroin more potent and cheaper. Uh, fentanyl overdose deaths skyrocket. So we now have this uh, drug overdose crisis that's actually fairly well disconnected from the problems in pain medicine. And so here's one thing that people should absolutely take away from the book. Solving pain medicine will not solve today's drug overdose crisis, right? So that's thing one. But we have to do both. We have to fix pain medicine because it's massively broken. We're not taking people's pain seriously. We're doing pain medicine in discriminatory, racist, and sexist ways. Uh, we're under-treating and over-treating pain simultaneously, over-prescribing opioids still at 300% the prescribing rate of the early 90s. And we still need to not contribute further to an overdose crisis. Even though fixing pain medicine won't solve the opioid overdose crisis, we can't just funnel more and more people over into this public health crisis. But because that won't solve today's overdose crisis, we then also have to do a bunch of other stuff. And so public health is being called to massive task because we have 70,000 people dying a year from drug overdoses. And that's going to take a ton of stuff that has nothing to do with pain medicine, like addiction treatment and harm reduction services. So those are really big problems. And of course, we have to understand the neurobiology of addiction and pain. Yes. Uh, and we have to get yes. a biomarker for pain. <laughs> So um, I want to remind our listeners that Travis's book, In Pain, A Bioethicist's Personal Struggle with Opioids, is now available at booksellers everywhere. Travis Reeder, thank you so much for writing this incredibly important and page-turning book uh, and for being on Inquiring Minds. Well, thank you, Andrea. This has been my absolute pleasure, and I am just so happy the book is out in the world. Uh, so thank you for giving a little bit of a platform. It's hard hearing stories of people being so addicted to these painkillers and just understanding the nature of their pain and uh, like hearing about coming down from oxycodone um, it was agonizing on some level. I mean, yeah, that seems like it was in some ways the worst part of the entire experience for him. And let me just say that the injury was horrific. <laughs> you know, uh, I had no idea meeting him a year later. I had no idea that he had had such an ordeal. Um, and I think that's that's something that, that really struck me is how invisible pain is. Uh, you know, we're all pretty good at hiding how we feel, uh, and especially when it comes to physical pain. And so it's very hard to understand what someone else is going through, um, because it's so subjective, and all the ways in which pain manifests. I mean, he must have just been irritable at all times. And yet, you know, he, you know, he's the he's the nicest guy, like you'd never know that from from having spent time with him. But the other thing that I found really interesting is his distinction that, you know, he wasn't addicted. He, there was never a time when he wanted to take the pills. He just wanted the pain to go away and he didn't have any other options. And I think that's a really important distinction because I think a lot of people start out that way. Um, even those who eventually do um, meet the criteria for opioid addiction. Uh, and, and that's where the medical field is really you know, failing, failing people where when they get to the point where they just don't see another option and living with the pain is not, you know, it, it just feels unlivable, just feels unsurvivable. Um, and so you have a choice between, you know, taking your own life or taking another pill. I mean, that seems to be very different from someone who is, you know, taking a drug because, you know, they want the, the pleasurable feeling that, that it gives them rather than the removal of something inc incredibly negative. 
Yeah, this makes the crisis when you sort of zoom out really hard to square because most of the stories uh, I've read around the opioid epidemic is about just seeing the prescription rates and how it's risen and just how many people um, are are dying from this. There's a, a, a quite a famous story about a West Virginia town that had, you know, millions of dollars of opioids prescribed for a town of about, you know, 14,000 people. But this made me really think about that moment of the person getting the prescription of what that must look like. Uh, and how a doctor is put in this crazy weird situation of trying to understand if this person is actually in pain because you can't see it. It's not showing up on any scans. So how do you deal with that from when you zoom out to more of the societal issues? How do we make sure that we're prescribing opioids for people that are in pain for something that we can't measure and test outside of that silly little scale that is still on all, you know, medical forms with like the smiley faces and to tell you how much pain you're in. I mean, and the other thing that bothers me is the fact that people seem to get prescriptions for 30 pills or 60 pills. Like there seems to be a kind of like this is this is the the quantity that it comes in rather than, you know, you we we expect you to be in pain for the next 3 days and then and then not have. So here's six pills, you know, or here's here's 18 pills. Like it seems it seems like the kind of thing if if there is this risk of having to taper, you know, having to go through this withdrawal, we we should really be very specific if we can be um, with how many pills that we actually give in a particular prescription. So that the person doesn't feel like, you know, we're all told when it comes to antibiotics, finish finish the, the entire bottle, right? So there's this kind of sense too, I think that even if you have a, a, a bottle of pain kills, even if you know, objectively, I shouldn't, I don't need to finish these, but it's okay because my doctor told me that, you know, he gave me this or she gave me this uh, prescription. So it should be okay if I finish all 60 pills. But for some people, that's already on the road to having withdrawal symptoms. You know, I had this weird experience where I, I had my wisdom teeth out not too long ago, and they prescribed a painkiller. It was an oxycodone-like painkiller. And I was in pain, and I would not take those pills because I was so worried about developing withdrawal symptoms. And even though I knew like taking one or two was probably not going to get me to that point, I was basically like, I am just going to try to tough this out. Now, Let's just be honest. I had my wisdom teeth out. I wasn't in probably that much pain. Like, don't don't shed a tear for me. But I wonder if we're creating this uh, reverse sense amongst people that they're going to be scared to take painkillers, too, when they are in pain, given what we're seeing in terms of the withdrawal symptoms associated to them. Yeah, I mean, and, and that and that's a point that Travis makes in his book, too, how for a long time, there was this pushback against any kind of opioids. And so people were left suffering, uh, sort of needlessly at end of life, say if they were suffering from cancer. And so, you know, there, there has been this pendulum swing in one direction and another. Uh, and so hopefully now we're getting to a point, especially with work, uh, like Travis's, that 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 there are going to be protocols in place, and there's gonna be more work to understand like exactly how many doses does a person have to take in order to experience withdrawal and i'm sure and i'm sure to some extent that is individual but i mean i think that would be a really important 
you know, work to do is to figure out like, okay, if you take 30 pills, what's your over the course of, you know, 10 days, what's your risk of, of having to taper or, or, you know, becoming addicted? Um, but it, and it sounds like from from Travis's uh, experiences that doctors are actually very willing to work on this uh, one, you know, in, in like when he's gone and given talks to medical meetings or, or to hospitals, etc. You know, people have really listened to a story, been really moved by it, and then, you know, willing to implement new guidelines. But the problem is, is that we just don't know what those are yet. Yeah, of course, because this is like a public health crisis. What, I mean, and that's their job. Of course, they would be completely invested in i i actually uh am not surprised by that because um every physician i've talked to uh you know even cursorily related to this topic seems so willing but stuck um as you say one last question after talking to to travis and and hearing stories do you feel like there's hope on the horizon uh for us to really make progress I do. I do. And I actually give Travis a lot of credit. I mean, I know one person can't change the world. Um, but I feel that, you know, there there are a lot of things that, that can be done. And I feel very hopeful about it because I think people are thinking about it now very smartly. And there isn't this kind of, you know, where in the past people thought, oh, there's no risk of addiction. And then they went through, oh, there's like 100% risk of addiction. And I think, you know, he's, he's getting at some nuances along with a lot of other researchers in this field. I'm not saying he's single-handedly changing the world. <laughs> um, but, uh, but I think he is making inroads. But also, I think that, you know, people are understanding that there is this distinction between, um, you know, addiction versus withdrawal and the tapering protocols that work and those that don't work and maybe more crosstalk between people who treat people with addiction and people who manage pain. And I think that, you know, I, I actually think that the solution is is there. It's out there. And I don't think it's that far away. Um, so, you know, I think with a little bit more science, a little bit more knowledge, a little bit more advocacy, we can really solve this problem. All right, that's it for another episode. I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, Charles Blyle, Clark Lindgren, Michael Galgul, Stephen Meyer Ewald, Kyle Rahala, Joel, Jonathan Worsley, Yushi Lin, Eric Clark, Jordan Millar, Herring Chang, and Sean Johnson. You can visit our website at inquiring.show and you can support us at patreon.com slash inquiringminds and get an ad-free version of this show. Find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to contact at inquiring.show. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Chian. And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at Andre Vis. And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.